The government responds to the motion to dismiss in the Lori Vallow matter. Evidence resumes in the Alec Murdoch trial. We have a trial date finally for Letitia Stauk and then our dumb criminal of the day. Let's talk about it. Good day, everyone. My name is Scott Reich, and this is Crime Talk. Thanks for joining us. You know the drill. Subscribe if you haven't. Like if you do. Leave me a comment. Hit that little bell for notifications. And remember, you can listen to us anytime on your favorite podcasting app. Now, before we get to the show, we have to support our sponsor. Sponsor today, CrimeTalkSearch.com. Go there for that background subscription search. You can do a background search on anyone while you have that subscription, a subscription that you can cancel at any time. But when you have it, you can search anybody here in the United States. And guess what? You can do as many people as you want. You're gonna get a report literally emailed to you while you wait, and it's gonna have information that's gonna show if somebody has a criminal history. Uh, do they own property? Are they divorced? Are they married? Do they have judgments against them? Are they on a public registry of some type? things you want to know, things you need to find out before you get involved with them or they come into your life. Go to crimetalksearch.com. All right, let's go ahead and open the record for February 3rd, 2023. That's right, Friday, heading into the weekend. So let's go ahead and deal with the first matter on the docket. The government, yes, the court has found it within their benevolent heart to release some of the government's motions filed in this case. And they have released the motion, which is a response to the motion filed by Lori Vallow's attorney saying, you need to dismiss the case because there was a violation of her speedy trial rights. And what do the prosecution say? Well, they said, hey, we get that the defendant filed a motion to dismiss, and it notes that the defendant was arrested in Hawaii in February of 2020. However, this arrest was conducted pursuant to a warrant in a prior case. Substantially different offenses were charged in that other case. As you may recall, first it was the abandonment, then it was um, tampering with evidence, and then ultimately the charges related to uh, the death of J.J. Tiley as well as uh, Tammy Daybell. So yes, um, different cases, but for constitutional purposes, it may apply. But really what the government gets to is, is yeah, your calculations are for the most part correct their defense. So let's go on. It says the relevant time calculations for the prejudgment incarceration are determined by the nature of the defense. And they cite a bunch of cases and it says the defendant's assertion that time spent incarcerated for substantially different prior charges should be used to calculate the defendant's speedy trial time is inaccurate since the calculations involve different case numbers and different offenses. One could easily argue that the reason they have that is because the prosecution was never really able to prosecute this case early on, and they have piecemealed it by starting with the abandonment case to get Lori Vallow back here, then the tampering charges as it relates to the bodies that are found on the property, and then ultimately the indictment for murder charges. So one could argue that, yeah, you could calculate that time, which is over a thousand days, because the government couldn't get their act together. That's basically what the defense is saying. The government continues. In this case, however, the defendant was arraigned on the indictment in front of the district court on April 19th of 2022. And although the indictment was returned by the grand jury in May of 2021, there were obviously competency issues that um, 
did not allow the uh, proceedings to go forward. Uh, because of the defendant's subsequent hospitalization, the arraignment was delayed. This delay is not attributable to the state. I think most people would agree with that calculation. Therefore, the government argues that the triggering date for the speedy trial analysis is April 19th, 2022, which is absolutely correct. And they cite the statute saying that the court initially considered the six-month guideline for a speedy trial pursuant to the statute and the scheduled trial date to begin in October of 2022. However, upon the state's motion to find good cause, conducting an analysis under the State v. Clark case there in Idaho, utilizing the four-factor balancing test established by the United States Supreme Court, this court determined that's right, Judge Boyce determined that there was good cause for a short, teeny weeny delay of the speedy trial clock. Thus, the court has already determined that there was not a violation of the defendant's speedy trial rights, um, and he was okay moving the trial to January 9th of 2023. And the defense's assertion that um, it was delayed by anybody else is without merit. The government argues that there is no evidence uh, that the defendant objected to the January trial setting, and there was f further delay to the defendant's mental health in October, uh, which the defense clearly states that that is not uh, attributable uh, to Lori Vallow at that time. So the government then concedes, hey, factoring in this delay, it's the defendant's position that, yes, her trial date should have started approximately 40 days after the January 9th date, which would be February 18th or the following Monday, February 20th. However, this determination fails to account for the necessity of coordinating the court's schedule, the logistics of holding a trial in Ada County, and uh, furthermore, it's almost exclusively focused on a strict interpretation of the six-month time limit to bring a case. Yes, because that's what the statute says. And most courts will say, oh, you can't get to trial within six months. Guess what? Six month and a day, case dismissed. That's what it is there for. That is statutory Speedy Rights Act. The statute in the state is actually greater than the constitutional speedy uh, trial um, calculations, which are a lot differently. And it really depends on the fundamental right and not the statutory right. But most courts say that, you know, a year is kind of the delay when you're saying, take me to trial, take me to trial, and you can't get there. And the government says here, hey, a delay of 44 days beyond February 18th is not presumptively um, unconstitutional. And therefore, uh, the court's already found good cause. So don't worry about it, judge. Um, it'll all be okay. You found good cause close enough for us. It's government work. Six months in the statute. Why should that mean anything? Hmm. I don't know, ladies and gentlemen. You know, the, the, the legislature writes the laws. They say that words have meaning. And then they try to change what the words mean when it doesn't help the situation that they're in on that particular case. And I know we've said it before. First thing they teach you in law school, there's always an exception to every rule. But then you have to start wondering if it's fair. Now, don't get me wrong. Lori Val and Chad DeBell have certainly put themselves in a predicament here, haven't they? We all want to see justice done, but it is also a greater injustice when the law is not applied equally and fairly to everyone. Now, Chad DeBell has waived speedy trial. I don't think there was a court date he didn't go to where he wasn't prepared to waive speedy trial. But Lori Vallow, all she has ever said was, I want a speedy trial. That's that simple. Um, just saying. 
I get it. There's an exception when you have co-defendants in the same indictment. But when one defendant's demanding speedy trial, we're not talking a week or two. We're talking 44 days. Mess around and find out. We've all seen that little thing, right? The more you mess around, the more you're going to find out. Why do it? She wants her trial. Go do it. I've said this from day one. The prosecutor said, Judge, they want a trial. You tell us where, you tell us when, and we'll have all of our witnesses ready to go. But the prosecution is just as guilty as the court is in delaying this matter. I know there's time excluded that doesn't count, but even if you go by the government's calculation, Lori Vallow's speedy trial is, her speedy trial right is being violated. And I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, if you let the government railroad guilty people, they will start doing it to innocent people as well. The laws mean something. The plain language means something. The Idaho legislature says six months. Don't blame Lori Vallow. Don't blame her attorney. It's on the government. The government has the job to protect the record. The court has the job to protect the record. And I don't know what's going to happen. Probably the judge is going to say, ah, 44 days, no big deal. It's 44 days. Well, think of it as 44 days that you had to spend in custody when the case should have been dismissed against you. You'd probably think 44 days is an eternity. I would think so. So, just saying. Now, another thing is interesting is that the defense for Lori Vallow has filed another motion because the government says, you need to tell us everything that you're going uh, to tell everybody about as it relates to mental health issues. And the defense has said that in the guilt phase of the trial, no expert witnesses will be called by the defense, which will support a claim of basically uh, the mental illness or defect uh, because it's not really a defense to the crime, but it can be used to present or negate an element of an offense, right? There's no NGRI in Idaho, but then it goes directly to the element, the knowing element uh, in, the, um, in the element. However, but when you start making those kind of an NGR arguments, whatever you want to call it, they don't have it. It's kind of an admission of guilt. It's like an affirmative defense. I did it, but I was crazy. But the defense is saying, um, therefore, if no crime was committed by her, there's nothing to negate, right? It's that simple. Because as you recall, her alibi was, I didn't do it. I never harmed my children in any way. It was Alex Cox that did it. So I didn't know he was going to do it. How are you going to prove that I knew he was going to do it? Just because I'm a terrible mother and I didn't say anything afterwards doesn't mean that I did it. So she's saying, why would I submit evidence to say I was incompetent and therefore uh, I have to negate a knowing element that I knew what was taking place? Because she's saying she didn't. Hope that makes sense. Basically saying, I didn't know Alex Cox was going to kill my children. And oh, by the way, um, I was in Hawaii when um, Tammy Daybell died. So you can't really blame that on me either is what she's saying. That's her alibi. It's going to get interesting. We just need a good, strong judge. For example, like we have in the Alec Murdoch case. So we finally got back to a bunch of evidence today. So let's kind of go through real quick what took place. Uh, Paul Greer, who is a sled ballistics expert, uh, testified um, in a motions hearing uh, with the jury absent, has taken the stand again. And uh, Mr. Greer testified earlier that he examined the markings of the uh, 300 blackout casing recovered uh, and various casings recovered across the Murdoch uh, property. The markings were similar enough to determine that they were fired from the same rifle. Uh, fire identification has been around for years, he testified to, and he told the court last Thursday, therefore, it basically is reliable and he should be allowed to testify as an expert, which the court found. 
saying there's lots of studies to show the reliability of firearms identification, etc. Now, the defense had argued that Greer's testimony should be excluded, uh, claiming there wasn't sufficient evidence that markings left on the casings would differentiate rifles from Moselle from every other 300 blackout rifle manufactured in the world. Prosecutors have uh, blitzed through a slew of sled agents who collected DNA swabs from persons of interest in the investigations regarding the death of Maggie and Paul. Sled agents Blake Johnson, Deborah Horney, Joe Abelaide, and Allendale Police Chief Lawrence Wiggins have all taken the stand briefly to introduce DNA swab evidence that they collected. That is part of the chain of custody. You are required to bring in all the people that collected the evidence, uh, those who tested it, those interpreted it, and how it got there in the courtroom today. Some of the agents testified that they collected swabs from uh, Randy uh, Murdoch, Alec Murdoch's brother, as well as Alan Gonzalez. Agent Horney testified she uh, took swabs from Morgan uh, Dowdy, Paul's ex-girlfriend, and Miley Altman. Uh, Wiggins collected DNA samples from Anthony Johnson, and uh, Johnson said he took samples from C.B. Rowe, Murdoch's former groundskeeper, and Connor Cook, a survivor of Paul's 2019 boating accident. None of the witnesses were cross-examined. Now, in an ongoing bid to cast some doubt on SLED's investigation of the area where Paul and uh, Maggie were uh, killed, defense attorneys uh, questioned the lack of fingerprints evidence collected from the scene. If you have a relatively small room where somebody's, you know, let's say, for example, head exploded and uh, blood of all kind and bloody fluids were sprayed all over the inside of that room, you'd want to take a meticulous examination of that room to see if fingerprints were in maybe on blood or bloody fluid, would you not? The fingerprint examiner, uh, Mr. Darnell, confirmed that you would have, adding he wasn't sure what all the first responders uh, had going on in the media investigation. And the defense attorneys also suggested that investigators overlook potential sources of fingerprints, such as doorknobs at the kennel. The defense also contends that SLED never considered other suspects but Alex Murdoch in the murders, and he and they potentially bungled investigations, uh, the destroyed evidence leaking others to the crime. Now, SLED investigators identified traces of fingerprints on Paul Murdoch's phone and guns retrieved from Moselle, but were unable to identify anyone based upon those fingerprints. The fingerprint examiner, Thomas Darnell, testified he examined the weapons retrieved from the hunting lodge after the murders and Paul's cell phone, and he returned a no value for comparison results, meaning that there was no trace fingerprints on the items, but there was too little detail to identify uh, something there. Now, we also heard a lot of financial testimony over the last two days um, outside the presence of the jury, and we had the president of the Palmetto State Bank Jan Malawinski testified Alec Murdoch was deeply in debt after Maggie and Paul's murders. In August of 2021, Malinsky said Murdoch's debt to the bank climbed to $4.2 million. Murdoch's account uh, was overdrafted by roughly, you know, $350,000 by August 9th of 2021. And Alec Murdoch was facing a mountain of financial pressure prior to the death of his wife and son. And all that testimony over the last several days, now Judge Clifton Newman is going to have to decide whether some of that pressure or all of it should be shared with the jury in this case, who obviously uh, did not hear any of the evidence um, as it relates to you know this pressure that led up to Maggie and Paul's deaths. 
There's also been some testimony about evidence of calls deleted from the alleged killer's phone, a video that places him at the crime scene and others showing he changed his clothes on the night that Maggie and Paul were killed. Prosecutors claim that he killed the pair at the family's hunting estate there in the Low Country on June 7th of 2021 because the walls were closing in on his financial crimes. And um, I'm not going to lie, looks like there were lots of financial crimes. You can try to spin it and say, oh, we were deferring money for tax purposes, but there was just too much shuffling, just too much shuffling. Next, Letitia Stauk. Remember her? That's right. Finally, a judge here in Colorado set a trial timeline for Letitia Stauk, who has obviously been accused of the brutal murder of her 11-year-old stepson, Gannon Stauk, back in 2020. Prosecutors allege that Gannon Stauk was stabbed, shot, and beaten inside the family's El Paso County home, but the body was later found stuffed in a suitcase beneath a bridge in Pace, Florida. Now, Letitia Stauk's trial has been delayed in part by requests for mental health examinations, but Judge Gregory Werner seemed ready to get down to business at hand on Thursday as he ordered all documents to be submitted for trial no later than February 13th, including expert reports on Stouk's sanity. Werner set a deadline for March 9th for all other motions and said jury selection would begin on March 20th, with the trial set to begin on April 3rd. Now, the district attorney asked for six weeks for the trial. Stouk's uh, defense attorney said that they are concerned about all the uh, pretrial publicity and effect it may have on the selection. And guess what the judge said? This sounds like something Scott would say, wouldn't it? Publicity itself is not a basis for removal of a juror. The question is, it doesn't matter what you've heard, doesn't matter what you've seen, the judge said, just like Scott says. The question is, can you put that aside and decide the case based on the facts? And if the answer to that is yes, then it doesn't matter what they've seen. It doesn't matter what they've heard. Let's get the trial rolling. All right, and finally, our dumb criminal of the day. A Minnesota woman was uh, sent to jail yesterday for domestic assault after allegedly clobbering her boyfriend in the head with a chicken. That's right, a whole chicken, according to the police. Um, the, uh, the victim still had some uh, chicken residue in his hair when they responded to the 911 call for assistance. Now, the victim told police he was driving home uh, last night to the Eagle Lake residence he shares with Natalie Broomer when he was attacked. The man who, who uh, apparently had been at the bar previously with Ms. Broomer, just saying, just saying, maybe some alcohol involved. We haven't brought you any food violence in a while. I know, it's back. Anyway, the victim said that she was hitting him and spitting in his face as they were en route home. Upon arriving at their residence, the man alleged that Bruner hit him with a whole chicken in the back of his head, according to the probable cause statement, and the victim still had the residue in his hair. When the police sought to place Ms. Broomer under arrest, guess what? That's right. She struggled and resisted and began pulling away with her hands as the uh, officers tried several times to get her into handcuffs while being escorted from the home, and uh, Ms. Broomer reportedly continued to yell and attempts to pull her arms away from the officers, and she kicked her legs around. So now she's not only charged with domestic violence charge for assaulting her boyfriend with a chicken, she also has obstruction of uh, police charges as well as misdemeanor assault charges against the police officers. Um, she's been booked in the county jail, and uh, no word whether she's made bond as of yet. 
Um, just showing you, alcohol, food, don't mix. Uh, New Year's over, basically. We're back to food violence. Uh, we'll, we'll bring you the food violence as it comes to you. Ladies and gentlemen, it's out there everywhere. All right, that's all we have for you today. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next time on Crime Talk.